Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, March the 4th, 2023. A few months ago, we did a show with a, a gentleman called Aaron DeSmet. Um, he talked about why, and this is his language, why in our age of permanent volatility, we need to foster a zen-like deliberate calm. I have to admit, I smelt a rat or at least a linguistic rat. He's the co-author of a book called Deliberate Calm, How to Learn and Lead in a Volatile World. If anything, that kind of title brings out my anger. There's nothing calming about it. DeSmet is a classic McKinsey guy. He's a highly paid, big-time consultant. When you look him up, uh, his goal, and I'm quoting the site, is to deliver growth, innovation, and organizational agility. God knows who comes up with that kind of linguistic garbage. One of his co-authors is a woman called Jacqueline Brassi at McKinsey. These are the top people. They're paid hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars to spout this kind of garbage. Uh, she is a core researcher, according to McKinsey, and practitioner in something called sustainable human development and performance. And she's passionate. Whenever anyone describes themselves as passionate, uh, I'm always very suspicious about helping individuals and organizations thrive. Again, more linguistic garbage. Uh, the third author in the book is a, a Dutch guy called Mikael Kreut, um, who works at a place called the Center for Compassionate Leadership. I'm not necessarily suggesting these people are bad or maybe some of the stuff they're doing is good, but I smelled a horrible rat when it comes to these McKinsey people, these big time consultants who charge fortunes to churn out this kind of garbage. And I'm not alone in noting what a scam the whole thing is. Uh, my guest today is the co-author of a really important new book, The Big Con, how the consulting industry weakens our businesses, infantilizes our governments, and warps our economies. The book is out uh, early next week in the United States, and I'm thrilled that uh, Rosie Collington, who co-authored the book with Mariana uh, Mazzucato, is joining us from uh, University College London. Um, Rosie, congratulations and welcome. Am I being too unkind about these people, or, or uh, would you agree that they all smell a little bit like a dead rat. I think that's an interesting observation. And thank you very much for having me on. Um, in the book, we actually come at it from a slightly different perspective. We look at the kind of structural things, how this industry has become so big and how that then shapes, you know, the behaviors of the different consultants, why they, it might encourage them to produce these books, to get their name out there, to get the McKinsey brand out in the world, for example, as a way of potentially increasing contracts in the future. So I think it's, it's definitely an interesting position. Um, we have quite a good faith um, interpretation of why people go into consulting in the first place. You know, they're promised, young people are promised that they're going to be able to create purpose and have a big impact and um, potentially even be at the forefront of the green transition. You know, these are all really exciting things for young people um, who are interested. Uh, and in uh, Rosie, let's not just limit it to young people, old people. Everyone. Old people yes, like exactly. myself like this kind of stuff too. So before yeah. we get into your critique, 
how big is this industry? I mean, we all know about the BCGs and the Bains and the PWCs and, and the McKinsey's. How, how large a sector of the economy is it? So the estimates of the consulting industry as it stands at the moment, management consulting industry, is bet somewhere between 700 to $900 billion globally, or, or perhaps uh, th that estimate was actually from 2021, so probably a bit more than that, probably closer to a trillion. One of the issues, though, which we put kind of right at the front of our book with trying to analyse this sector as a political economist or as an economist or even as citizens is that the data about how much money they make, where they make their money, where their revenues are coming from is very difficult to access. So unfortunately, we don't have an accurate estimate of the size of the industry globally. We think it's about a trillion. That's a large industry. And one of the, one of the troubling things for me as a parent uh, and you've noted this earlier, is that these guys, the McKinsey's and the Baines, they get the cream of the crop of the top universities from the top business schools. Why is that? Is it because they pay the best? Why, why is McKinsey able to essentially cherry pick from Harvard Business School and Oxford and UCLL and all these other top universities? Yeah, there's a few different reasons that, again, we explore in the book. In the 20th century, when consultancy was growing as a profession, recruiting from these elite schools became a kind of strategy of the firms to create legitimacy or create a sense of legitimacy around this profession. This was not like the legal profession or even accounting, which had some regulation and was a protected profession. There is no protected profession and no kind of formal qualifications to become a management consultant. So historically, recruiting from these schools was a way to add legitimacy and show that, you know, we have the experts, we have the, the top brains in society. The reason that they have been quite successful in this regard is not just because of the salaries, though they are important in places like London and cities where rents are quite expensive. Having a few kind of extra thousand pounds a month, obviously, or a few thousand pounds a year, obviously helps with being able to pay rent and live. Um, but also because of the things I was talking about earlier, these firms promise the world, in essence, they promise young people, you will be able to create purpose, you will be able to have an impact. It doesn't matter that you don't know what you want to do with your life, because you can try out different industries as a management consultant. And we will encourage your learning, we'll help you forge your career. Um, you know, these are things that I think many people would like from a job, you know, not just young people, as you say, as well, older people. So um, a lot of money, a lot of resources is spent, is invested in the recruitment of graduates and, and other people into the consulting industry. Yeah, I mean, these companies are very slick. Um, I was looking before we did, uh, before before we went live at the uh, the BCG, Boston Consulting Group, which I think was, um, I'm not, it was that Romney or maybe Romney set up Bain or one of the founders of Bain. Now, the language on the site on, on BCG, for example, for people listening, you don't see this woman and two women clapping hands but uh, inclusion isn't just nice it's necessary and another one better together open ai and bain form an alliance that's chilling that open ai and bain now are in bed together uh, and then another really distasteful one on bain win the recession who's coming up with this language and, and is the language in your view rosie is it the core to the big con i mean is it just essentially a lie coming up with slick mark come that, that, that has been invented, architected by slick marketing people? 
in some ways, I wish it was just language invented by select marketing people, because in a way that would be much easier to challenge. But what we discuss in the book is how this language is just part of the power that these firms have. There's also a systemic power that they have, a structural power. They are embedded across our economies in government. And to understand this properly, we have to look historically at how these firms developed. We also have to look at how capitalism has evolved and how that has transformed governments and the idea that we have around what the state can do and what it is is necessary for the private sector to do because of these ideas that you know it's more innovative it's 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 where the expertise lies it's where the true capabilities lies um so it's not just the language it is a a host of factors unfortunately um which we try to unpick in the book Rosie, you mentioned uh, before we went live that you liked a show we did earlier this week i think it was the big lie a, a, a show or a book about the fetishization of the markets, which in mm. turn result in undermining government. Has, um, ha- has big consultancy, what you call the big con, has that played a role in this neoliberal undermining of the credibility and purpose of government? Yeah, great question. We describe the big con in the book as fundamentally a relationship. So this is something that has both been enabled by governments, by successive governments that have helped to uh, not just kind of embed these narratives, but implement policies that shrink the role of government and shrink the role of the democratic state in our economies. Um, But also consultancies have then with these kind of open doors in government helped to promote these ideas or reinforce these ideas and ways of working in government such as privatization and um, outsourcing and the introduction of kind of managerial ways of thinking from the private sector into the public sector so just to give you an interesting statistic you know many of your listeners will be familiar with margaret thatcher in the uk and the kind of policies i hope they're all if they're not familiar uh, with margaret thatcher uh, rosie then <laughs> they probably don't deserve to be listeners but anyway no. i don't want to I don't want to ban anyone from listening, but uh, they they should be. I hope they are. Perhaps not. Well, if you're not, this statistic might give you a lot of kind of context to what Margaret Thatcher was about. So at the beginning of her um, uh, time in office, the UK government was spending only £6 million a year. Sounds like a lot, but it wasn't uh, that much. £6 million a year on consultants. 11 years later, by the time she left office, the UK government was spending £246 million a year on consultants. So And they were... Yeah, so go on. No, and they were being brought in, you know, to help advise with things like the privatisation of the railways in the UK and also um, uh, assessing, you know, which sorts of services might be outsourced and various other things like this. So they were really part of the kind of project of neoliberalism in the United Kingdom and helped to entrench it. It's interesting you bring up Margaret Thatcher. She was a, a young, highly talented, I mean, whatever you think of her, she's clearly highly talented and smart. She was, a, I think, a chemistry graduate from... Uh, Oxford. She chose to go into politics and government. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher 2.0, a a woman of her intelligence and drive and probably economic background. She was from the lower middle class. That that type of young woman now would, would go into a Bain, would go into a McKinsey. They wouldn't go into government, would they? Well, quite possibly. Look, I'm a graduate of two political science degrees, and I can tell you that, unfortunately, when I graduated, 
very few people did want to go and work for the government, you know, work it going to get on one of these graduate schemes at a management consultancy or, you know, going to work in the private sector in a bank, for example, on a graduate scheme. These were the things that people were aiming for. So, you know, that's why in the book, again, we look at this as being not just a problem with this industry, but with capitalism and how our economies are running, you know, why is it that people don't want to go and work for government or go into politics or go and work in their communities? They're the questions that we need to ask really to get to the roots of why the consulting industry is so big today, I think. So can we, ble- I- I'm guessing that, and I know from looking through the book that it, in many ways, the consulting industry can't be blamed. It's always e- easy to focus on mm-hmm. one institution or industry to blame everything. But in many ways, it's a consequence of, I know what you guys might call the uh, the neoliberal economy or our neoliberal culture. Is that fair? I mean, not everything can be blamed on McKinsey or BCG or Bain. It might be nice to do so, but that's slightly too simplistic. No, I would completely agree. And uh, but it's not just a consequence. It has in benefiting and as we describe, riding the, these waves of capitalism or, or these kind of waves of neoliberalization, it has also helped to entrench them, right? So it, it is a consequence, but it's kind of a mutually reinforcing consequence, if that makes sense. I wonder whether some of the types of politicians who have risen and in many ways fallen over the last 30 years uh, tell us about also the fate of, of consulting. A Clinton or um, or a Blair would have been as comfortable, I think, in government as they would have been in McKinsey or BCG. I know you touch on 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 um, on some of these politicians in your book. Uh, is the crisis one also in our politics that it's churning out young men? And I, I'm, I'm guessing it's not just men that they tend to dominate. Uh, young men like Bill Clinton and, and Tony Blair who speak inside or outside politics, the language of the big con? Uh, Interesting question. And it's not something that we touch on specifically in the book. Again, we're focusing on the kind of structural factors that has given rise to this sector. Um, But, you know, we do see a number, we do see politicians who either have come from the consulting industry or have gone into consulting afterwards. Pete Buttigieg, for example. Yeah, he's the classic. uh, And he may even conceivably end up as president one day of the United States. Yeah, so, but I think a a potentially more interesting way of thinking about, you know, the likes of Pete Buttigieg is both, it's not just that, you know, he is someone who is able to speak the kind of language of this world that the consulting industry has helped to create in markets, for example. but also the fact that so many people now are going to work for these firms as their, as, their, as the career they do when they finish university. So given the scale of the sector, it's not surprising that we find people who are have been consultants in the past in essentially all sectors of society, including politics. Um, Rosie, I know you're talking to me from University College London, where I studied uh, many years ago. If you walk downstairs, you will find, and I'm sure you know this, uh, uh, a, a stuffed mummy of uh, the father of utilitarianism, Jeremy Bentham. Yeah. Um, it's quite really an eerie sneaky. sight. I wonder whether the ideological or intellectual foundations of, of what you describe in the big con can be found in a, in a Benthamite utilitarianism. In part, I think absolutely. You know, if, if we think about what we discuss in the book as the ideas about learning that essentially underpin the consulting industry and this idea that we can create economies of scale in knowledge 
that that can then be applied to different sectors. And this is a way for businesses that are clients of the consulting industry to reduce their transaction costs by just kind of copy and pasting um, models that have worked in other sectors. Um, then, then I think you know almost certainly we can trace this in some way back to to uh, utilitarianism and, and and Bentham. We know obviously that that doesn't work as we describe it in the book. This is a problem also with how we understand learning within organisations. You know, we knowledge cannot just be brought or bought off the shelf. Often, organisations develop kind of specialisms and special ways of working um, and the knowledge that is specific to those organizations only exists within it so consultancies can you know offer knowledge that they have about cases that they have worked on or, or the companies that they have worked on um, maybe within the same sector but it's rarely the case that that knowledge can just be brought into another organization it has to be developed over time um, it's not to say it never can you know we also say that when governments or other organizations want to uh, do something new or confront a challenge perhaps then they very often will need the advice or the capacity of an external organization the problem is that turning to consultancies has become the default option in many organizations across our economies and it's not working as a default option i'm guessing if if we had an Aaron de Schmidt or that type of consultant big big time concern on the show, they might suggest, well, it's all very well going back to where government was strong, the New Deal, but that was a simpler economy, a less dynamic economy, a less globalized economy. Um, the, the comple- you talk about complexity, and of course their language is overtly complex, but the economy is also complicated. Uh, is there some truth to the fact that in our globalized, fast-moving, highly technocentric age of economic and political and cultural disruption. Um, consultants are the only ones, big time consultants at McKinsey or, or Bain, they're the only one who can keep up with the world. Again, I think that argument comes back to this very narrow or um, flawed idea of where knowledge comes from and how it develops, how it develops, whether it can just be bought off this kind of market that already exists or whether actually it requires development internally within an organization. To give you an example of, um, you know, where actually the use of expertise externally would have been useful and kind of inevitable. Um, The pandemic, the global pandemic, which we've all lived through and are living through, of course, um, uh, invariably would have required governments to look externally to experts, whether from universities or from other governments, for for example, that had been successful in, I don't know, HIV monitoring, which we know were quite successful in kind of translating into COVID-19 monitoring. uh, it, it was inevitable that they would have to go elsewhere and probably also turn to other organisations as a source of capacity. Um, the problem with many government's uses of consultancies was often those consultancies were themselves not well placed to provide the knowledge and expertise that didn't exist internally within the organisations that were contracting them. So in the UK, for example, there was a parliamentary inquiry into the government's contracting of consultancies during the pandemic. Um, and just to give you an example, Deloitte at one point was earning £1 million a year from the UK government for its contracts for the National Test and Trace programme. Right. The- the parliamentary inquiry found that not only was this kind of use uh, or not only was this program overusing consultants, but actually these skills didn't exist within the civil service. So the NHS wasn't able to recruit from them internally either. Um, so in this situation, invariably, you know, governments, particularly when they lack capacity after these many years of reform that we have 
discussed in the book that have led to kind of outsourcing and hollowing out of the state or hollowing out of government organizations, invariably governments are going to need to turn to organizations. But the problem is often they don't even know who to work with. They can't evaluate properly properly the promises of these companies and so the default assumption is just well the consultancies must have the ability to do what we are asking them to do because they're so big because they have these reputations and because they're expensive and you know and because they're expensive and so we'll just bring them in and exactly. and they show a lot of powerpoints i i know uh, you, you focus in the book on deloitte's involvement with covid in the uk also <laughs> with um with healthcare.gov in the US, how is this a manifestation of your argument in the big con? Yeah, this is another great case, actually. So health, healthcare.gov, which, again, most of your listeners, if not all of them, will be familiar with. Yeah, we have, no, we have about half our listeners that are in the US, so half will be okay. familiar with healthcare.gov. Okay, so platform.gov was the platform where in the US, um, under, the, uh, uh, under Obamacare, uh, people could access or compare different insurance programs that were available to them. And it, it was called the market exchange platform. So it was going to be this kind of amazing platform um, that would help lots of people get access to healthcare in the United States. And it was the landmark reform of Obama's um, uh, presidency, right? It was huge. But on the day that this platform launched in October 2013, just six people were able to access the platform which is nothing. It's tiny. I mean, it's a huge, colossal failure. Um, yeah, even then, even this, uh, even my show has more than six people watching and listening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it it did very badly. Um, and there has been kind of huge uh, analysis both within the government and by various different um, think tanks on why this failed. Most of them have kind of laid the blame at government procurement and the fact that the procurement uh, kind of wasn't done properly. Governments were government organizations were not communicating between departments, all of this sort of thing. Um, but when you look at the scale and scope of contracts that healthcare.gov um, involved in the development and building of this platform, it was absolutely massive. And that's not to say that the government should have done it all either, right? This was a new challenge that required the kind of expertise of lots of actors across the society. But the government also internally lacked the capacity to oversee and manage these contracts, to even know what they were doing. Um, and they were contracted in ways that meant that when there were mistakes made, that it was the government who had to pay for them effectively. Um, so this was not just a problem of, again, kind of big evil consultancies doing doing like bad things. This was more a problem of structural problems with government and the capacity of government and how it oversees, how it is able even to oversee contracts when it needs them. So uh, government, uh, healthcare.gov and the, the stuff in the UK is internal. But I know you also focus on the international and perhaps the neo-colonial nature of the mm. big con. Uh, you talk about um, Puerto Rico's bankruptcy. There was an interesting piece in the New York uh, magazine about uh, the McKinsey way to save an island. How, do, how does the big con, how does big consultancy reinforce our neo colonial inequality in, in the global economy? Yeah, amazing question. So we look at the book and it's worth kind of stating from the outset that most consulting contracts, the biggest markets for consultancies are still in Europe and North America, right? But the fastest growing areas, the fastest growing markets for consultancies today globally are in developing countries. So they are currently expanding a lot in uh, countries outside of the kind of quote unquote global north. Um, historically, as we look at in the book, 
when, for example, the World Bank and the IMF were providing loans to countries in the 1980s following the debt crises, occasionally or often, um, it would be mandated in the conditions of the loans as part of what were called structural adjustment programs, that the implementation of the restructuring of their economies would uh, require or would mandate the involvement or the contracting by the government of a management consultancy to kind of oversee the restructuring process. You know, we see this still today. We see this in loans that development banks are giving to countries around the world um, I'm not going to kind of name any specific cases, but often it is required then that those um, com- that those countries or those governments have to contract a management consultancy to help oversee the implementation of a project that the loan is there for. Um, so in this way, it is, you know, I guess in, in your terms, we can see this as a form of neo-colonialism, perhaps insofar as a lot of this knowledge and expertise, a lot of the people working for these companies are not coming from the countries uh, where where they are kind of placed or where they are sent. Um, and, and of course, the headquarters and where a lot of the money flows is to the global north. So there's that kind of structural issue as well. Yeah, and the yeah. elites in all these countries and in all these organizations and at the places like BCG and McKinsey, they all go to the same uh, business schools. Uh, I, I wrote something... Uh, few months ago on what we called neoliberal pietism, business school empathy aren't getting us out of this mess. We did a show earlier this week with a Dutch uh, architect on the decimation of language in, uh, in architecture uh, infected with words like wellness, innovation and livability. It's the same language of the big con. Uh, Rainier de Graaf wrote architect verb. And we talked, of course, inevitably and when we talk about language about Orwell's politics in the English language is a beginning here, at least, Rosie, to address the big con and clean it up. Is it language? Do we need to force these companies? I don't know how you do force these companies, but do we need to concentrate on making sure that we're not bamboozled with this corporate consulting speak that ultimately, the more you think about it, the more meaningless it becomes? I think that is the first the first kind of small step. And that's, I guess, what we're hoping to achieve or what we were hoping to achieve with the book, right, is to start a conversation about the role of these companies in our economies. And so when, for example, a civil servant or a manager is presented with a pitch from a management consultancy, that they are then better able to assess it on its own merits, um, which, you know, might entail that they end up not contracting the consultancy and instead looking internally or perhaps looking elsewhere in the economy to an organisation that has kind of better expertise. Um, But more than that, as we also call for in the book, we do need reforms to how... um, consultancies, for example, are governed. I think it's very important when governments are working with management consultancies, that citizens have access to information about and the people making the decisions within government that are contracting them have access to information about who else they are working with, regardless of whether there is actually a conflict of interest or or, or if that conflict of interest um, manifests. In the case of, for example, climate consulting, 
if a government like the Australian government did contracts McKinsey, for example, to help develop its net zero strategy, then it's very important that citizens also understand and have access to information about the fact that McKinsey has also advised 43 of the 100 biggest polluters or corporate polluters in, in the world. This then, you know, might add a kind of critical lens or might might enable citizens, equip citizens with the tools to assess the advice that McKinsey gives to the government, for example. So that's one thing. I, I mean, that's all very well, Rosie, but you know as well as I do that citizens in Australia or elsewhere, they don't have the time to start looking through McKinsey reports and understanding that McKinsey is uh, benefiting from both sides of the street, uh, both uh, uh, selling their services to the oil companies and also to, to, to governments fighting those oil companies. Is that really realistic? Sure, but it's not just citizens, right? It's when if citizens want it, then it should be accessible to them. Fundamentally, it's those who are making the decisions about who to contract. If a civil servant is, uh, you know, working to implement policy that has been uh, uh, implemented by a, a politician who has been elected by citizens, they also have a duty, you know, to understand if the contract that they are making will help to. Um, kind of realize that policy right and and if there is a conflict of interest perhaps it won't help to realize that policy perhaps it might undermine it in in, in various ways so no of course this isn't just about citizens getting access to things you know fundamentally it's about decision makers who are elected to act on behalf of citizens or employed to work on behalf of the policy makers um, uh, being able to make decisions appropriately and then being more effective and having you know what we would actually describe as kind of proper capacity to do their job to understand you know the economy uh, that they're working in. Rosie, we've done many shows on neoliberalism, one with the Cambridge University historian Gary Gerstle on what he calls the rise and fall mm -hmm. of the neoliberal order. Certainly something's changing. I mean, whether, we, whether or not we live in neoliberalism is debatable, but it's certainly um, a, a new kind of world, for better or worse, is coming into being. Uh, and it's up for grubs, grabs what that world should look like. Your co-author, Mariana Mezuchato, is, is one of the world's leading progressive economists. She's written all sorts of books, uh, The Value of Everything, The Entrepreneurial State, Mission Economy. So she's a, a broad thinker, not just a critic of, of the big con. And like you, I know you, you work with her in, in terms of research. Um, in terms of figuring out this post-neoliberal order, um, which everyone's trying to do, um, what could or should the role of big consulting be? Can it actually play a productive role in trying to um, address the weakening of businesses, the infantilization of government and the warping of our economies, which seems to have taken place over the last 50 years? Yeah, so I think one of the kind of core things that we wanted to get at in this book, right, as you say, we're now entering or potentially entering this post neoliberal period where people are talking about the state again. The governments are spending and creating more money than kind of ever before. And the scale and scope of the things that they are legitimately uh, responsible for doing are kind of unprecedented in the history of government. So I think certainly we are potentially at a new um, kind of period of of capitalism. But then the question becomes, how are the services, how are these goods and services and the things that governments are mandated to do produced, right? And that's what we get at in the book. It's not just enough to say that the state has a role or that the state should spend more, for example. It's also about 
um, how these things are how these things are created, how these things are implemented. Um, and in, in terms of the role of big consultancy firms, I think given the business incentives, that the, the business models and the incentives that exist within this industry, I would suggest that it's probably not possible for it to exist and shouldn't exist on the scale and scope that it does today with the power that it has today. Is there a role for advisor, uh, external advisors across the economy? Yes. Does that also mean that we should kind of expand our thinking about what constitutes an advisor to include not just, you know, kind of experts, but also people who have experience within communities, trade union organizations, academics, perhaps. Um, it, so it requires, I guess, the, you know, I guess I'm coming, I'm coming back, not answering your question. Um, if there is a role for advisors, we also have to rethink who those advisors are um, and whether they are best well placed to help us meet the needs that, you know, governments and other organizations are kind of being put to. Yeah, I mean, the big consulting, what you call the big con, has siphoned off the best and brightest from our top universities, particularly business schools. So I think the challenge is figuring out how we get the best and brightest uh, to choose to go into government or public service rather than work for McKinsey or, or, or Bain. Isn't that really the ultimate issue? I mean, absolutely. In the book, you know, we talk about the kind of first thing that we discuss in the book is how everything that we then subsequently propose as a possible policy reform also depends on changing our narrative and also uh, our narrative about government and the role of the state and also the remit of the civil service. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. And it requires us as academics, people in the media, politicians to not just talk about the state in terms of uh, being a market fixer or something that is there to de-risk the kind of real innovators in the private sector, but actually recognises the state as an important actor in our economies that serves a purpose acting on behalf of citizens.